Welcome back to the Insights Unlocked podcast. In today's episode, User Testing's Lisa Lloyd talks with Bezaz Sarjani about democratizing research across the org, measuring research's impact, how to tackle diversity and inclusion in research practices, overcoming resistance to research, and creating a go-no-go decision-making framework. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Insights Unlocked, an original podcast from User Testing, where we bring you candid conversations and stories with the thinkers, doers, and builders behind some of the most successful digital products and experiences in the world, from concept to execution. Welcome to the Insights Unlocked podcast, recording live at User Testing's The Human Insights Summit, taking place in Seattle, Washington this week of August 2023. I'm Nathan Isaacs, and joining us today as host is Lisa Lloyd, a Senior Customer Success Manager at User Testing. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, everyone. Our guest today is Bezaz Sarjani, founder of the Yet Another Studio Consultancy, working with a range of clients, including Figma and Dropbox. Bezad is a research consultant, advisor, and investor. He's also an executive in residence and program partner at Reforge, where he built and leads the user insights for a product decisions program. Previously, Bezad led research operations at Slack and was a senior UX researcher at Facebook, where he co-founded the Research Associates Program. Welcome to the show, Bezad. Yes. So welcome to the show. Thank y'all for having me. To tee up our conversation, we asked UX researchers in the User Testing Contributor Network their thoughts on how to democratize insights across their organizations. Here's what they said. What are some ways UX teams can share customer insights across their organization in an engaging way? Yeah, this is kind of a big problem in UX in general. Uh, for me, you know, it, a lot of it is um, after kind of finishing a project or a study or an experiment or something, We'll put together a slide deck with insights of how it kind of impacts the company as a whole, not only the specific product that we're working on, but, um, you know, what does this mean for the company as a whole? Does it mean more engaged customers? Does it mean more revenue? Stuff like that. I think uh, user experience researchers should be included in the meetings uh, from design to product development and even in product development actually because in some of the product development meetings they are there is always a way of um you know a negotiation right in terms of the design uh but the the researchers can actually provide some insightful uh, thoughts uh to give the team uh, if it would work or not. Bezan, you've been teaching the practice of research for more than 10 years. What does democratizing customer insights across the organization mean to you? It's a great question. It's a big one. When I talk about democratizing research, what I'm really talking about is the need for us as researchers to recognize that there are many people in an organization who participate in learning and decision-making, right? In almost every company, the founder is really the first researcher. And so I think there's an opportunity for us to use our skills and our expertise to support and scaffold a lot of that learning and decision-making that goes on. So it's not giving away work that we don't want to do or saying, oh, you know, this is below us or beneath us or anything like that. I think it's more about taking a, a holistic look and saying, what is it that the organization needs? Uh-huh. 
what of those things are researchers uniquely capable of doing, whether that's primarily like leading research itself or looking at partner teams like customer success or support or sales who do things that look like research and figure out how to help them do that work better. Teaching salespeople how to do better discovery interviews or like ask probing questions, working with customer success to build out survey templates for, you know, pre-training or post-training evaluation, right? Areas where together we are trying to drive organizational outcomes and, you know, researchers don't or probably shouldn't in my perspective be in like every customer conversation. That's not a good use of our time, but there's a lot of things that you probably do as a customer success manager that I could help make more effective. And it's about saying across the company, how do we take a more holistic look and not just say that our job is to do research, to talk to customers, to like have this one opportunity to contribute. Oh, this is about to get very interesting. So I'm a researcher, sociologist. Amazing. Moonlighting as a CSM. Fantastic. (laughs) And something you said, the researcher, the founder is the first researcher. So how do you make people who are somewhat afraid of the word research realize that they are participating in research every day? It's a great question, too. For me, I think the, the most helpful way that I've had like this research conversation with a lot of folks who get scared or especially don't want to use like research method names or they're worried about saying the wrong thing is recognizing that like most of our job in an organization is about making decisions. Like we exist to do something for a set of customers and every day we need to figure out what is it that we can do to better serve those people. Now, the way to make good decisions is, you know, you're not always going to have perfect information, but typically you want evidence to be more confident or feel like you're reducing risk in some way. And I think research is a process of, you know, systematically and rigorously gathering that evidence so that you can be more confident in those mm-hmm. decisions. So one of the metaphors I use with a lot of early stage companies is like decision making is kind of like playing Wheel of Fortune, right? Like you're going to guess at something. It's not going to be perfect. You're not totally confident, but there are letters missing. And if you want to get another letter, you could have a customer conversation. You could run an experiment. You could do an internal exercise, right? Mm-hmm. And really the opportunity for us to help people think about what research is, is what are the activities, the conversations, the, you know, experiments, whatever it is that are going to help us feel better about what it is that we're more confident that doing this is the right thing or that doing this in a specific way is going to be helpful. And starting in plain language, like very often I'll work with founders and say, okay, here's this decision we're making, right? To ship or to not ship something. Uh If you if you could design a perfect world and feel better about it, what is it that would you need to do? Is it you need to see someone do something? Do you need to hear something from a certain kind of customer? And even just using that, you can kind of work through, oh, I would love to hear from large organizations about how they currently do this activity. It's like, great, you just helped me structure a research project for mm-hmm. me. That's simple. I love the Wheel of Fortune reference. You're aging us, but I'll take it. Now, the one thing that you did not mention, Wheel of Fortune, you get money when you guess right. So how does research impact the return on investment for organizations and how do you convince them that it's worth it? (laughs) I'm picking on you a little bit. No, 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 this is fantastic. I think it depends a lot on the organization. Like the, the way that you acknowledge the impact we have depends a lot on what your work looks like. And I think structurally how you participate in the organization And I don't think, I should say, I think one of the big mistakes is that a lot of people try to evaluate research impact based on 
you know, how many people watched a highlight reel or how many times our surveys were sent out or what. And I think that that's a mistake because you want to measure whether or not you helping the organization in some way changed a thing. Uh-huh. And that thing could be very different, right? It could be, did I help the sales team close a deal? Did I help the customer success team build a better pilot so that they could, you know, improve the health of a customer? Did I help the product team make a decision about whether or not to ship a thing? And in that world, there's no one answer. There's not one thing that research does, right? And I think I can throw another metaphor out there. I think a lot about how, you know, building products is, I use this metaphor of like a man with a lever and a rock. Mm-hmm. And so like a lot of people, I'm like, right, this is building products. Like, where do you think researchers, which part of this diagram are they? And they're like, oh, like we're the man, you know, we're like, we're doing this heroic thing. We're like lifting the boulder out of the way. And I joke that a lot of product part, or like our partners often think we're the rock. We're like, hey, you're not talking to enough customers. You're not asking questions the right way. But the real value in our work is being the lever, right? It's saying we can help you do a thing that you are trying to do more effectively, more efficiently, more confidently with more clarity, like whatever that is. Mm-hmm. And I think what's hard about measuring research impact is is that descriptor, like whatever that that instrument is, can be really hard to operationalize. And it's it's not only hard to operationalize, I think it it also has to be incentivized in career ladders, in organizational commerce, et cetera. And that I think has not happened super well across a lot of organizations, especially in an age where a lot of people are fighting for relevancy in their job, right? It's it's much easier to say we did 15 studies, we talked to 200 people, X, Y, Z happened. But you're literally just telling me what you did. You're not telling me at all if that mattered, right? And, and, and one of the big problems is that people fall into this trap of doing research because they want to learn something, not because it's actually going to help the organization move forward. And so getting a pat on the back for like talking to customers because you learned a thing that no one's going to do anything with is is a terrible way to like evaluate research, right? That's a key point. But I think it's it's hard to go from that world of I did these things, give me a gold star for doing it to because my team exists, everyone in the organization is more confident in how we make decisions. Our product launches are more successful. Our sales team is able to close faster. It just, it takes more work to actually measure those things. Mm-hmm. And you need to have better partnerships with all of those disciplines to measure in terms of their outcomes, mm-hmm. right? And like, are you having a delta on the thing that they think is successful? Well, you answered my next question. So that was really good. But now I have a follow-up. Perfect. So... Convincing people that research or the return on investment of research is the amount of decisions that move a an organization forward. Love that definition, by the way, using it. Um, now that you know that and you're sharing that with customers, how long do you see that it takes them to actually believe and live that value? It depends a lot on typically two things. The like, size of the organization and I would say like how mature they are, which is a word that I, I think gets misused. But if you are a very small organization, so there's a client I'm working with right now where one of the most impactful things I did for them was build a research plan template. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that was helpful because I literally embedded the questions that I would ask a stakeholder into the project plan. So as they're filling this out, it's like, Okay, what's a brief description of the goals and what decisions are we trying to make? Like, Why are we doing this research, right? Mm-hmm. And then who are the stakeholders that are going to be able to act on this work? Who's going to sign off on this, right? And it, 
even just taking a lot of the conversations that I'd have with a product manager who's thinking about going and doing a project and operationalizing them into a template, it creates a little bit of friction and it slightly changes how they do the work. But then they're forced to think about them like every time they're doing a study, right? Yeah. And so it's like, great, here's here I can embed that idea straight into the process. I love that answer because I feel like you're essentially saying that people have to see themselves in the research that they do. The stakeholders have to see themselves in the research that is happening on behalf of them. So knowing that, I got to ask you the diversity question in research. How do you get customers to not only buy into the value of research as it moves organizations forward, but how do you do diverse research that not only includes the stakeholder landscape, but also the true customer landscape? So if I understand the question correctly, when you're talking about diversity in terms of stakeholder, well, can you reframe the question a little bit? Okay, so the thing that I liked most about your response was that you have to put in the research plan what the stakeholders are looking for. Like the objective is baked in there. Do you feel the same way about the diversity of the customer base being baked in there? Does that research have to be culturally, culturally congruent? What does it need to reflect not only the stakeholders' wants, but also the customers that it affects? Yeah. And this is probably an area that I could use a lot more education. I think from from my experience, one of the traps people fall into when it comes to diversity is that there are a lot of, they apply a consistent lens across every project. And they say that every research project needs to have XYZ characteristics. We need to find people who are different on this spectrum. And that's what... And, I think in a lot of cases, it's important to recognize that the people that you're trying to serve probably have different experiences and different perspectives and orientations, and those things are important. But there are situations where if you if you start with a question of, oh, let's pick something arbitrary, how do Fortune 500 companies manage security for their executive team? Uh-huh. If I'm trying to understand that, then what I want to look at is who's the population of people that I'm actually trying to study. What are who are the, what's the composition of executives at Fortune 500 companies that need security? Right? That need security, <laughs> right? And so you can start to work through. Okay, what are if I look across that population? What are some of the meaningful differences across those groups? Is it some of them are single? Some of them are partnered? Some of them have children or dependents? Some of them have single properties? Some of them live in multiple properties? Some of them, you know. I would start by saying, what are the attributes of the group of the customer set that we are trying to understand mm-hmm. without, you know, and and work through that to feel what is reasonable and then ask yourself, where am I potentially missing something? Where am I being blind? Where am I being biased? Where could I be taking a more holistic look? I think the trap a lot of people fall into is they start with those questions of saying, how broad can I go? How can I, how can I make sure that I'm being inclusive? And very often what you, what you end up with is something that doesn't exactly represent your customer set and ends up, I think, at least in the way that the conversations happen in a lot of companies, feels almost performative at the cost of being authentic. That was a really good answer. No, you did not have prepared for that one, but you answered it well. Reduce your average sprint time and get your products to market faster with continuous customer feedback from user testing. Whether you're launching a new product or prototype, get real-time video feedback straight from the source. Digital product teams leverage the user testing human insight platform to help them make their most critical development decisions, always putting the customer first. 
target your exact audience, ask questions, and get a window into their world. The result? Your teams are building better products and experiences that your customers love. To get started, visit usertesting.com slash audio. Well, it's high. it's high. I mean, I think one of the things that Facebook was particularly good about, maybe to, to people's surprise, was there were a lot of, like, when I was there, we were building for billions of people. Mm-hmm. And we were very aware that a bunch of privileged people in air-conditioned buildings in Menlo Park should not be making decisions for how billions of people around the world use the internet. And so we often moved teams to closer to the market that we were trying to serve. So there were parts of it, there was a really like difficult moment at one point in Facebook where a team that historically had operated in the Bay Area, the product team just got like, the, the product itself and ownership got moved to the Middle East because that was the best place for where the products, like people who were using the product were. And it was like something like, you know, the majority of the customers were within that region. Mm-hmm. And the team was really frustrated because they're like, we want to continue contributing to this. And it's like, Yes, but from a business perspective, you you are so far removed from the experience of the people who are actually using this product. We need it to be, you know, more authentic to what those people are. And they're like, and obviously there's a lot of business reasons for where products own, but okay. I think we were very good and, and very fortunate at that point that we had enough revenue to like go into market and do a lot of field research and continues to say like, yeah, for the large part, we're like overwhelmingly, you know, white we're in the bay area we're like affluent privileged we're like that just doesn't represent the world mm-hmm. and the more that we can acknowledge that the more that we can start to confront that and change that and the research practices i think really reflected those things that's a big deal that is huge and i think moving the research to where it affects people the most is definitely a privilege um financial totally. and socially totally. definitely a privilege and i would say that great research is often inconvenient. And so in that example, do you think that's true or do you have a different thought about it? I don't know if I would say that great research is often inconvenient, but I'll sit with that. I th- I think that very often people decide to do research later than they should. And that makes it feel inconvenient because there's like, there's a momentum to the building cycle. And then you're you have an intervention. You're like, we're going to actually stop and go talk to people, observe a thing, you know, do whatever mm-hmm. it is. And that feels like you've thrown a wrench into the system. And so I think if you if you plan effectively, it doesn't feel like it has to be that way. So like maybe an example, when I was at Slack, we had a large and growing user population in India and we didn't have an office there. We didn't have a lot of coverage there. And we knew we needed to support Like we cared about this part of the market, but we didn't know anything. And so I ended up taking six people there for a week. We met with nine customers, had four focus groups. We were like doing in-office visits. We did a big survey before that. And like that from a cost perspective was not cheap. From a planning perspective, took a lot of my time and the team's time. And so in all those ways, like it was inconvenient. But what it opened, like the fact that we did it when we did it didn't feel inconvenient. It felt like we were making the right investment in understanding a growing segment of who we hoped would be an important part of the user base and recognizing that we didn't know nearly enough about them. And so this was the right way to go talk to current small customers, current large customers, potential customers, run exercises with different audience segments and whatnot, and just also be in market to understand a lot of the things that are super hard to do from behind Mm -hmm. the screen. So I think 
First of all, that was great. <laughs> I keep saying that because it really is true. But I think it, it reminds me of like the death of an ego. You mm, know, you're a consultant. Yeah, so yeah. you see clients all the time who think they have it all figured out and they may not be as open to trying new things. But it seems like your team really was like, OK, we're going to go in and we're going to be humble to this process. So what do you say to customers who are struggling with humility for the research process? One of the exercises that I've done with companies that has been helpful, and, and I should preface this with, I'm generally very lucky to work with people who are excited and understand what the value of research is. And so it's it's very often like convincing that one person who's a little bit... You know, On the edge. Not, not as excited about it. Um, I mean, we'll have the Wheel of Fortune conversation, which can be a good one. But the other one I do is I'll have them look back at the last like year of things they've launched. And for major decisions, we map out like, how did you come to this conclusion, right? Was it, did it feel obvious? And if it felt obvious, where did that come from? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we we knew we needed to make this change or we heard this from customers or we believed this was better. And as you start to pull those threads, you realize that very often you can help them come to the conclusion that they were inspired by things outside of themselves. And then you can kind of, you know, once that's all on the table, you can say, well, was this the best input to that decision? Or if you could do this again, what might you have done differently? And that usually opens up space to say, yeah, I could have been more methodical or more intentional or more rigorous in who I talk to, how I talk to them, what we talked about. And you're like, great, right? Like I'm, I'm literally like making space for myself in that organization and, and helping them understand why doing research can be helpful. That's amazing. So you disarm the tough client who's probably not ready to kill the ego you go to the population most served by the research, right? So humility to the process. And you make sure that people understand the return on investment is not how many studies you run or how many tests you look at, but the informing of decisions that push the organization forward. Yes. And I, I before you get to wherever this was going, I did want to say that I think the other part that is important is recognizing that and maybe this was embedded in the, the comment you made about research being, um, you know, can be challenging. It's like sometimes research is not the answer. And I think that's an important thing that, you know, we unfortunately have this bias towards trying to be valuable. But I think it's you will be more respected and more valued for knowing when to engage and when not to engage. And I think one of the challenges I see with a lot of folks who are early in their career is they're arguing that like, oh, you could always do re- like research feels like this net good, right? Like mm-hmm. it's kind of like speed or performance, you know, like, oh, we could always make this better. Yeah. But at a certain point, like the return on investment is bad. And it's like if, you know, if it's going to take me six months to have us go from 50 percent confident to 90 percent confident. Or I could just launch it tomorrow and no one's going to be harmed. No one's going to be endangered. And if it breaks, we can roll it back. There's no reason you should be doing that research. You should just roll that out and go spend your six months doing something else. Right. But I think that also gets really hard because people don't feel incentivized to say that. They feel incentivized to do the work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where, you know, the beginning of the conversation, we're talking about ROI. You can't measure your success by like the activities that you are doing. Right. Because that that leads to you saying that I am only valuable if I am doing research. And that just perpetuates this cycle, which is really problematic. Uh-huh. Research is not always the answer. Now I need to put that on a shirt, but I, 
I care. I don't, I don't know if they would be very excited I don't, they about that. They wouldn't be excited about that. But I find like an example of research not being the answer is that it can really lead to decision paralysis, right? Some people get addicted to doing the research and pushing out the tests and analyzing and six months have gone by and they have not done anything with that information. Totally. So how do you push customers or your clients to the edge of decision making? Yeah, this was something that Slack was actually pretty good at, I think, in, in parts of the company. But we used to do pre-mortems. So like whenever we had big efforts, it was like, what do we think could go wrong? And if it was to go wrong, what would that look like? How might we be able to tell whether that's, you know, customer success people telling us, hey, we're starting to hear this from teams or clients aren't excited about this beta or we're going to track these metrics. Okay. And so I think having that upfront conversation of we believe doing this is right and here's why. Here are the things we want to do to feel more confident about doing this. And should we start down this path and it's not working, we will know because of these things. I think it helps create a little bit of boundaries in the space, right? Of like, okay, we, we need more evidence, but we're not going to do this for a year, right? We, this has to get out into the world. Mm -hmm. Similarly, like we're, we're always going to make a guess. And if it starts to go wrong, we already know we have a reasonable idea of what that looks like. We'll pause, we'll stop, we'll do more research, we'll have, you know, reevaluate, et cetera. Um, but I really think that the, for me, the decision framework has been really helpful because if you're just oriented to learning, it's open-ended, right? Like you could be learning stuff forever and you just feel good about it. And you're like, oh, this would be, a you know, there's lots of things you can learn. Most of the things you can learn don't actually help you make decisions. And so if you start with like, okay, we're missing two letters on the board. We want to get one more. This is the most effective, efficient, valuable, whatever way to get that letter. Let's just go do it. And if we guess the wrong word, here are the reasonable things that, you know. I like, I like the pre-mortem because I think I call it with my customers, what's your threshold for pain, right? Like, yeah. Let's look at what could potentially go wrong and are we okay with that? And that's a really jarring conversation because it usually involves millions of dollars totally. or rework or a bad product on the market. But it is essential to have that conversation. Do you always have it or do you bring it up when maybe the stakes are a little bit higher, or a little bit more unique? Well, I think your point about thresholds is a good one where for for different types of efforts, you want different risk thresholds. And actually, when I worked at Facebook, I worked on the ads team and there were a lot of experiments we rolled out where depending on the size of the experiment, we had different thresholds for how much revenue could be affected before we turn the experiment off, right? Certain things that felt small were like, okay, you're going to have a limited impact on audience, so this percent versus this thing is larger, which means, you know, smaller percentage, right? Whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And I think as an organization, having some clarity on what that feels like and what are those reasonable thresholds for different kinds of efforts can be helpful. Mm -hmm. I mean, w when we used to send the tracking surveys at Slack, before I would send, you know, the tens of thousands of them, I would send out 10% in the morning. And then I would watch bounce rates. I would see if there were errors. I'd look at data quality. And then if that worked, I'd send the other 90%, right? And if I was doing this for, you know, that was for tens of thousands of customers. If I was doing this for hundreds of customers, maybe I would do more than 10% because I want a slightly bigger sample to mm -hmm. get, you know, responses and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I think it's about being balanced there and thinking, how do I sufficiently de-risk this without, again, like making this an open-ended, like you're never going to be a hundred, very rarely are you a hundred percent confident in things that you're doing. Right. And it's about having a reasonable plan if things don't go well, 
being honest about why things might not work and then figuring out how you can like keep track of those things. Yeah, the the threshold for pain is really similar to our go no go criteria. And so do you have them listed out or is it a conversation, a brainstorming session? It's usually collaborative between the team. So, you know, product, design, engineering, data, research, marketing, depending on what the effort is. Um, mm-hmm. On For like the surveys, we were always very clear about what percentage of different accounts we wanted to hit, you know, customer size, stuff like that. So I think it's more contextual, like a lot of things with research. The mm-hmm. answer is probably, it depends. It depends. Our but, favorite answer. You know, I, I think a lot of it is, you know, your conversation about like pain or pain thresholds is, what is the organization willing to bear, right? That's like very often the question. It's true of when you like make product launches, you know, what is what does quality look like? And how do you all feel good looking at the same thing to be like, yeah, that's worth putting out into the world. Okay, I've had a great time with this and I want to continue this outside. <laughs> but I'm going to ask you one last question. For a new team, a seasoned team, or not a team at all, what is your best research advice? The first conversation I have with almost anyone I work with is how are your customers protected? So like, do you have the right kind of guidelines and guardrails in place, which usually means like GDPR compliance? Are you thoughtful about how you recruit, opt-outs, keeping track of those things? And then the next conversation is we'll often look at like what's coming in their roadmap. So next six to 12 months, what are the big decisions you're trying to make? And what are the things that we could do to start to de-risk that or give you more confidence or whatnot? And then I'll use that to basically build a roadmap for the company of, okay, if you feel like the the thing that's going to help is having a bunch of interviews, do you feel like the team themselves has the capability to do that? Or do we need to start doing training? Do we need to build templates? You know, whatever that is, because... I think it's really hard to build a research practice all at once, but it's much easier to think about how do you chip away at starting to build those capabilities. And the other thing is, you know, especially as a consultant, I'm often thinking about when I come into an organization, I'm worried about organ rejection, right? Mm-hmm. And so I want to I want to think about how do I meaningfully introduce like different components or building blocks and see how those even get responded to, right? I'm not going to come in and pretend that I have all the answers. I've seen some things that have worked and I have questions that I want to ask them. But it's like, let's make one change at a time, see how that resonates. How can I introduce new change? I'm sure it's very similar to customer success, uh-huh. right? Like, I'm going to ask you to do this differently. And they're like, eh, that's a big ass, right? And you're like, okay, let's let's scale back. Let's do a smaller one. Cool. This is the right size of intervention. Or I didn't have buy-in from this person, which now I know I need to get next time, right? Um, and so just being thoughtful about how you introduce those changes. But my first question is always like, how do I protect the customer and the business? Because, you know, if you can't do that, then you probably aren't going to be around very long. That's very true. This was amazing. You had a lot of quotes in there that I want to put on a t-shirt. So, okay, how can people find out more about you and your thoughts? That is a very kind ask. Uh, I am very online. So LinkedIn is probably the easiest place. I'm also on like bezod.com. So between those two, there's probably plenty for you to look at. I will find you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Want to keep the conversation going? You can find the show notes at usertesting.com slash podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or Google Play so you never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, please share it with a friend or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. 
And until next time, this is Insights Unlocked, an original podcast from User Testing.